This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Simon Sinek about the fruits of good leadership. To see your team achieve more than they thought they were capable of, that they will advance the organization further than you even imagined because they believe and they're grateful and they're inspired, it's all worth all the sacrifices. It always is. Here's Debbie Millman. Are certain people just born to be leaders? Or is leadership something that can be learned? Are there strategies and skills that we can learn from the likes of Martin Luther King, Steve Jobs, and other inspiring movers and shakers? Simon Sinek is trained as an ethnographer, and he has spent a ton of time thinking about leadership. His ideas are distilled in his latest book, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. He joins us today in our studio in New York City to talk about his career, his book, and leadership. Simon Sinek, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. The first question I want to ask you is about your desk at Mm -hmm. work. Do you still have a Star Wars figurine on your desk to remind you of the importance of the rebel spirit? I do. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more? Who is the, who is the figurine of? And, it's, a little, and... it's a little bust of Boba Fett. <laughs> uh, and so why do you have that there? You know, he, he sort of marches to the beat of his own drum. Why not Yoda? Well, I don't relate to Yoda. I don't see myself as a, an elder statesman. I don't see myself as the wise one. I sort of see myself as more like Han Solo or, or Boba Fett, sort of these rebel spirits. Plus, he's just cool. Are you excited for the upcoming release? It would be a lie to say no. I already have my tickets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I cried, J- at the, I cried at the preview. At the preview, yeah. J.J. Abrams mm-hmm. and Star Wars. It's going to be a better combination. It's good. You were born in England. I was. But before you ended up in high school in New Jersey, mm-hmm. you moved to South Africa, London, and Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Why did you move around so much? It was my dad's job. Uh, what did he do? He, he worked in marketing for Standard Brands, which was later bought by Nabisco. So shredded wheat and kiwi shoe polish, that kind of stuff. Interesting combination of products. Yeah, I mean, you know, packaged goods. <laughs> so the family moved around, and it was a pretty great way to grow up. You know, lived on four continents by the age of 10 years old. People always ask me, you know, don't you wish you had roots somewhere? And I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> my, my childhood is my childhood. I have nothing to compare it to. So, do you have siblings? I do. Have, I have a younger sister. And we are very opposite in our personalities, but we're very much the same in the sense that you can plonk us in the middle of something different or unknown and we'll figure it out. You know, that, that probably comes from the way we grew up. Do you think that all of those changes as you were growing up gave you a better perspective of the notion of change or uncertainty? I had to have. I mean, we are products of our upbringing. So my upbringing made me who I am. I'm very, very close with my family because we only had each other because we kept moving. Grandparents were people we saw a couple times a year and our friends would change every couple of years. So my sister and I are very, very close. And so I value things like close friendships. I I value people that despite the change I have in my life, that there are people I can confide in and go to. My family still being some of them. When you were a kid and you were moving around so much, did it impact how you saw the future of your life? Did you have different things that you wanted to be? What did you want to be when you grew up? 
No, I was a little kid like anybody else. You know, first I wanted to be an astronaut, <laughs> which I kind of still am. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You know, I was inspired by Steven Spielberg and the movies, and I wanted to be in a special effects supervisor, though I didn't know what that meant. And I was pretty resourceful as a kid, like even as a teenager, as a young teenager, maybe 12 or 13 years old, 14 years old, I wanted to be the special effects supervisor. So I called up a special effects studio in New York City and asked them if I could come and visit and learn. And they said, sure. And my parents drove me in one wow. evening and they gave us a tour and they made special effects for commercials. And I mean, I, I've really never been asked this. I've never thought about it. But I guess, you know, I was always um, impulsive, both good and bad. There's the impulsive side where, you know, Simon, just focus on one thing. But there's also the side where if I wanted to do something, I just kind of went and did it. So that's a good example. You went to Brandeis University and mm-hmm. studied cultural anthropology. Did you want to be a professor at that point or a consultant or a no, practitioner? No, 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 none of those things. I was actually trying to build my own major. And I took one class in anthropology. I think I was a sophomore. It was called Culture and Cognition. Mm, and uh, the professor, Professor Murray, he had such a passion for the subject. And it really sucked me in completely. And I declared right after that class, I abandoned making my own major and declared myself an anthropology major. And my interest in anthropology wasn't digging up bones, which is physical anthropology, but cultural anthropology, which is the study of people, culture. And where my colleagues were interested in things like the Bongo Bongo or some Amazonian tribe with 13 members left, my interest was much more urban Western culture. Uh, I was interested in the world that I lived in. And so my own research was in student leadership, and I did some field work with the Massachusetts State Police. And I sort of, I was, I'm just interested in this. I loved going to bars and watching people and seeing how they would court each other and stuff like that, you know. Oh, yeah. So I live as this anthropologist just living my life, I guess. But you then went to City University in London with the intention of becoming a lawyer. Yeah. But you left law school to yeah. go into advertising. Yeah. So you, so both, I have two questions. First, you wanted to be a lawyer. And yeah. second, you wanted to go into advertising. Yeah. So tell us about both of those. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you graduate with a degree in cultural anthropology, I didn't want to be an anthropologist, though, ironically, that's sort of what I it's do. It's sort of what you are yeah, now. It yeah, it is. No, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, Why? How do you wake up and decide, today I'm going to decide no, to be I wasn't, a lawyer? No, it wasn't that sudden. I believe in truth and justice and good and bad. And I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor because I wanted to put bad people behind bars. It was really very simple for me. It was, uh, an, I guess it was an ideological thing. And I graduated college on the heels of, uh, this will age me, O.J. Simpson. And I really became very disillusioned with the law in America where it was about winning and losing. It mm-hmm. wasn't about truth and justice. So I went back to the UK where I think the legal system there, the criminal legal system, is still much more about truth and justice. Okay. Um, the problem was I just didn't fit the culture. You know, if you didn't wear a pinstripe suit to your interview, that could prevent you from getting a job. And I'm just not a pinstripe suit kind of guy. So I dropped out of law school and I had – this is how careers go. Our careers are accidents. I happened to be dating a girl who was studying advertising. She went to Syracuse and was an ad advertising major. So she sort of inspired me to get on that kick and I – Dropped out of law school, came back to America, and, and went straight into advertising. So you went to work at Euro RSCG, and then Ogilvy and May there, and mm-hmm. then back to Euro. Mm-hmm. What was your role at those agencies, and did you enjoy it? Yeah, I had a good career in advertising. It was a short but good career. I went up the ranks pretty quickly, which was fun. I was a, an account guy, but really a strategy guy. And strategy and planning is a um, amorphous category in, in the business. In, in some agencies, it's literally a strategy person. In other agencies, it's a research person. I always worked on relatively small accounts, which gave me a lot of freedom to kind of do more than my role as an account guy, which was great. 
I loved working and continue to love working with creative people. I consider myself a creative person and enjoyed it and quit to start my own little business at 28 years old. And you started your business in 2002. Quite an interesting time yeah. to start a business. Well, you know, I mean, people say that. There's no right time or wrong time to start a business. You know, if you start a business in boom years, sure, it's easier to find clients, but you have way more competition. If you start a business in lean years, it's much harder to find clients, but there's no competition. Pick your poison. There's no difference. They both come with their advantages and their challenges. And the fact that I did it right after September 11th was part of it. After September 11th, I had trouble going back to work in advertising because I felt my job was stupid. Tragedies like that sort of force you to have a lot of perspective. And I really struggled to make ads to sell stuff I didn't care about. So when you started Cinec Partners, what we what was your intention? What kind of work did you want to do at that time? I cared much more. Um, a, I cared much more about strategy. And even back then, my interest was internal inside the company. I never understood why when companies wanted pr- to present their brand to the outside world, they would go ask customers what they wanted. It never made sense to me as a strategy guy. It made sense to me to go ask the employees who you were and what you stood for and what you believed and what you had in common and who you are when you're at your natural best and then share that with the outside world. And so I was very different in the way I approached brand strategy, which is I actually spent more time talking to employees and some customers rather than only customers and no employees. You know, it's really funny having this conversation. You start to see the pieces of the puzzle come together. It's fun. In 2009 or thereabouts, you really exploded via public speaking. Had you been doing quite a lot of public speaking prior to that? Had you been presenting to different groups, organizations? Mm -hmm. How did you get to the place where you were invited to be a speaker at a TEDx conference? As a friend of mine said, it takes a long time to become an overnight success. Right. Yeah, I had been... Like 25 years. Yeah. I don't remember who said that, but some vaudeville yeah. actor said that. Yeah, I had been giving the Golden Circle the why speech for three years. I first articulated it in January of 06. Oh, my God, it's nearly 10 years. And so I'd been invited. People kept inviting me. It started off, I mean, just if the history is kind of beautiful, I think. It's very organic. It was never a commercial or academic exercise. I had lost my passion for what I was doing. I know. You wrote yeah. in the preface. I'd like to share this with our listeners. Sure. You wrote in the new preface of the book yeah. that when you first discovered this thing called why, it came at a time in your life when you needed it. It wasn't motivated by an academic or intellectual pursuit. You had fallen out of love with your work and found yourself in a very dark place. Yeah, that's true. And superficially, I should have been happy. You know, I had my own business. I had fantastic clients. We did fantastic work. I made a living. And superficially, I should have been fine. I was living the American dream, except for the fact that I didn't want to wake up and do it again. And so I kept that to myself because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed complaining that, oh, I'm unhappy, you know? All that privilege, right? Exactly. And so I kept it to myself, and I pretended that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I felt. Mm. And that is unbelievably stressful. Isn't that an epidemic, though? I, I think so. And I think that Gen Y suffers even more than I did because of social media, that we're constantly comparing our lives to the curated, filtered lives that people put up on social media. And by the way, my friends are never as good looking. My vacations are never as great. You know, my weekends even are never as good. Doesn't, my doesn't food doesn't even good. look that good. <laughs> you know, and so 
we know, I mean, there's good research on this, that people who spend more time on Facebook, for example, suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. Well, they're calling Generation Z now Generation D, D standing for depression. Yeah. And so the pursuit of this thing called the why started because a friend of mine came to me and said, I'm worried about you. Really? And when you have someone who cares about you offer you that safety net, it gives you courage to solve your problems. That gave me the courage to not only talk about Bagoa and figure out what was going wrong with me and would talk to her on a regular basis in private of the struggle. And that's when I discovered this thing called the why. And it completely restored my passion to levels I'd never experienced. And of course, I did what anybody would do when you discover something beautiful. You share it with the people you love. I shared it with my friends. And my friends would want to share it with the people they love. The way the speaking started, I, was, I would literally stand in someone's apartment in New York City. You know, the people would sit on the floor around the bed, and I would talk about this thing called the why, and I would help people find their why on the side for 100 bucks. That's how it all began. So for my listeners who might not have read Start With Why, why should they start with why? So every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, always function on the same three levels. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. It's based in the biology of human decision-making not my opinion. It's just the way it works. Every single one of us knows what we do. It's the the products we make. It's the jobs we perform. It's, you know, it's the obvious stuff. Some of us know how we do it. It's the things we write on our resumes. It's the things that we think make us stand out from everybody else who, who, who does what we do. But very few people can clearly articulate why we do what we do. And by why, I don't mean to make money or get a job. You know, those are results. By why, I mean what's your purpose, what's your cause, what's your belief? Why do you get out of bed this morning and why should anyone care? And those who not only are the most inspired but have the ability to inspire those around them all have clarity of why. This is what draws us to them. And so this is what I was able to do, fill in a missing piece of the puzzle. And you very quickly after that got a book deal. No, it wasn't quickly. It took three years. Okay. So in 2009, two big things happened. You published Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, which became a New York Times bestseller. And and you also gave a TEDx at Puget Sound Uh that has ended up becoming the third, either the second or third. It was was second. Now it's third? third. (laughs) Okay. And the the wonderful Amy Cuddy, her talk is spectacular. Oh, so good. Yeah. And she's she's number two. And I I love that. Becoming the third most popular TED Talk of all time. Yeah. And you did this all without a publicist, and initially you've, you had very little press coverage. It really was very organic. It continues that way. I mean, neither of my books have ever been reviewed by any major newspaper. Um, Why? I don't have a publicist. <laughs> um, the publisher does some work. Just that's what they do. Marketing, yeah. They do some marketing when the book first comes out. So I did do an interview on CBS this morning for Leaders Eat Last. But my, my work spreads organically. People share books with people they want to share it with. I'm very proud of that. It's because these books are statements of what I stand for and they're statements of visions that I have for the world we live in. And those who share this vision read the book and share it with people who they, they want to inspire. And I'm, I like that. I only have one more question I want to ask you about Start With Why because I do want to talk quite a bit about Leaders Eat Last. Um, and Gen D. And Jen D, yes. <laughs> and start with why you talk about how we make decisions based on what we think we know. What's wrong with thinking like that? We all think we're experts, but we know so little information. And so we can only make decisions based on the information we have. But what if you only have a limited amount of information? This is why I like vision. 
and the concept of why and looking way, way, way far ahead. Because what that does is it gives you a North Star. It's, the, it's like going hiking and only making decisions based on the boulders and trees and terrain you see in front of you. You'll eventually walk in circles or go in some direction you don't want to go in. Where if you know you have to go north, you have to go north. And the boulders and the trees are simply obstacles to move around. And so you you definitely don't walk north. I mean, our careers don't go in straight lines. Um, what does? No, exactly. Our careers don't go in straight lines. But you have to have a sense of the direction. You have to have a sense of, of north, of why. And that allows you to change course but come back to course. And so making decisions based simply on what you know is like hiking based on what you can see. It doesn't work. In the short term, you think you're making progress, but eventually you'll find yourself lost. Well, interesting metaphor. You write about how leadership is an act of being a compass, uh, that leaders must base their actions, thoughts, and words off of the organization's why, Mm -hmm. even if it comes down to the way you refer to the business. Mm -hmm. How so? You can tell when someone has a sense of purpose because it permeates out of every pore of their being, every word that they speak. I'll just use myself as an example. I actually write the word inspire on my computer and, you know, there's like I have a picture of Martin Luther King on my desktop at home as the background and Star Wars. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love the color orange. I talk about inspirational stories. It's sort of like you, you know what I stand for even if I don't tell you what I stand for because it's everywhere. Right? And I think people with a sense of purpose or cause, they can't help themselves. They dress that way. They act that way. They make friends that way. They like the movies that reflect that. They like the books that reflect that. They're drawn to people who reflect that. And they tend not to go to people who, they, who, who just serve them, but rather people who can, they can work together. You know, This is what authenticity means. The big joke of authenticity is that, again, going back to what I was saying before, you know, companies hire consultants to help them be more authentic. That's <laughs> hilarious to me, you know? It's absurd. It's like asking your friends, tell me how to be more like myself. Right. I don't know. Just be yourself. The whole concept of authenticity is knowing who you are, being okay with who you are, and taking pride in who you are. As and, is. And, no, and letting who you are show up everywhere possible, whether you're a person or your company. It's the same thing. After the publication of your book and your first TED Talk, how did you manage the nearly global popularity and recognition? I mean, what a change. It's very humbling when people would recognize me on the street uh, and stop me and be like, what? And it was always amazing how people started to treat me differently. When you're junior and you think differently, they think you're weird. When you're a senior and you think differently, they think you're unique, right? I'm still the same idiot that I was. Nothing has changed. I'm exactly the same person. The difference is people stopped calling me weird and started calling me unique. Ah, so you get the ceramic cup sign Yeah, but I'm fully aware that I'm still a, a creative weirdo misfit. Like, I'm fully aware of that. And so even now, I'm intellectually aware that people know who I am, but I'm... I, my life hasn't changed, I'll be honest. It's the same. I'm filled with gratitude. And when anybody stops me or treats me differently, it actually makes me want to work harder because they're looking to me for something and I have to up- continue to serve. So quite frankly, any recognition or change in how I've been treated that I've gotten over the past few years has only reinforced and inspired me to work even harder towards the vision that I so believe in. Do you ever worry about losing the ceramic cup? And if if you could, because it's a it's a really extraordinary no, I'll tell the story. Uh, piece it's such a great story. in uh, Leaders Eat Last about yeah. uh, the former Secretary General. Yeah. 
it was an undersecretary of defense who oh, was. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Sorry. <laughs> he, it was an undersecretary of defense who was speaking at a large conference, about a thousand people. And he was standing on the stage giving his prepared remarks. And he took a sip out of a cup of coffee that he had in a styrofoam cup. And he stopped and looks down at his cup and he looks out at the audience. He says, you know, last year when I was still the undersecretary, I spoke here at this exact same conference. They flew me here business class. They had somebody to pick me up from the airport. They drove me to the hotel. Someone had already checked me in and they walked me up to my room. I came down the next morning. There was someone waiting in the lobby to take me to the same here venue. They took me through the back entrance, took me to the green room and offered me a cup of coffee in a beautiful ceramic cup. He says, I'm no longer the undersecretary, and I flew here coach. And I took a taxi from the airport to the hotel, and I checked myself in. I came down to the lobby this morning and took another taxi to the venue. I walked in the front door, found my way to the backstage, and asked someone if they had any coffee, and he pointed to the coffee machine (laughs) in the corner, and I poured myself a cup of coffee into this here styrofoam cup. He said, the lesson is, the ceramic cup was never meant for me. It was meant for the position I held. Mm. And once I left the position, they'll give the ceramic cup to the person who fills the position. And I think it's the most profound leadership story, which is as you get more senior, life does get easier and better. People give you gifts. They call you sir and ma'am. They hold doors open for you. You get upgrades. You get more money. People do nice things. And it's really good when we gain some sort of rank or celebrity or whatever form it takes People are so nice and you get so much. But when you're out of the job, they'll give it to the next person. Like, you deserve none of it. And I think it's really important for people to remember that all of the gifts and goodwill that people bestow on us is not meant for us. It's meant for the position we hold or the the thing we stand for. There's something a little bit heartbreaking about that. No, I think it's absolutely beautiful. Because what it does is it means we're all equal. And what it means is every single one of us has the capacity to serve and give and be treated in a way that people are expressing gratitude. That's what that is. When people treat you differently, it's a way of saying, thank you, we admire you, you inspire us, you give us direction, whatever it is. You know, we line up, millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people line up to see the Pope. It's gratitude that you would stand in those crowds for a glimpse. And so he comes out and waves to say thank you. But the Pope is a great example, and you give a great example about how easy it would be for us as a culture to pay Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King the kinds of massive salaries that we pay some of the CEOs that ultimately ran our banking system into the ground. And so I guess what for me feels heartbreaking is that we seem to be so willing to bestow this rank on people whether or not they deserve it. Well, we've confused rank with leadership. Right. Uh, They are not the same thing. I know many people who are very senior in organizations who are not leaders. Right. We do as they tell us because they have authority but we would not follow them. Right. And lots of people carry their bags. Exactly. And the problem is, is that all of the things that people give us are not free. They are gratitude for something we give them. And so when leaders forget that it's a balanced equation, right, that's when we start to become disillusioned, right? So as you said, the reason we have contempt, visceral contempt for some of the banking CEOs and other uh, CEOs with their vastly disproportionate salaries and bonus structures has nothing to do with the money. Our anger is not about the money they receive. It's that they have violated their very anthropological responsibility as a leader, which is to take care of their people. We know that some of those leaders allowed some of their people to be fired or, or laid off 
so they could keep their ridiculous salaries or bonuses, or worse, they chose to sacrifice their people to keep their bonuses or salaries. There was a few years ago, Citibank announced record high layoffs the exact same year they announced record high average bonuses. That's weird, you know? Or the companies who pay huge bonuses to the CEO when the company does badly. I thought they believe in pay for performance, you know? This is when we become angry or disillusioned or when there's, or there's strife. But when a leader upholds that responsibility, then we're totally fine. As you said, no one would have an objection to giving Martin Luther King a $150 million bonus or Gandhi a $250 million bonus or Mother Teresa a $200 million. We're fine with it because we know that they lived their life in service to the people in their charge, people they cared for. Leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of people in your charge. It goes back to the ceramic cup story, which is when you understand that the ceramic cup is being given to you out of gratitude for the service that you offer to the people in your care, then you can continue to enjoy the perks, understanding that they are their expressions of gratitude. Just that when someone gives you a birthday present, go ahead and enjoy it. Say thank you. Be grateful and enjoy the new sweater. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that people give us, but we have to remember that they don't come for free. The perks of leadership are not free. They come at great personal sacrifice for the person who's in that leadership position. And the personal sacrifice is I would willingly sacrifice my interests to take care of the lives of the people in my care. That's the deal. What motivated you to write Leaders Eat Last, why some teams pull together and others don't? I went as a guest of the United States Air Force to Afghanistan. Um, I was doing some work with the mobility forces. Um, Those are the ones who, all the big heavy planes, uh, anything that doesn't drop a bomb, basically. So the tankers, the the cargo planes, even Air Force One, they're all part of the mobility forces. And the general in charge said, you know, Simon, you've gotten to know us quite well. I'd be really honored if you would go and see our men and women perform their duties in theater. Would you be willing to go to Iraq or Afghanistan? So I said, sure. I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them to worry. I told them I was going to Germany. True. I told them I was going away with the Air Force and would be out of touch for a while. True. I just didn't tell them I was going on to Afghanistan. (laughs) Um, And it was a very intense trip, to say the least. Um, I had no responsibilities there. I was going as an observer, and they wanted me to fly on a bunch of different missions. And I went with two escorts, two officers who accompanied me. We left from Dover Air Force Base in Delaware and flew to Ramstein, Germany, and then caught another plane and flew to Bagram, Afghanistan. We landed, and we were on the ground for 10 minutes. This was the middle of the night, and the base came on a rocket attack while we were still on the plane. Three rockets hit 100 yards off our nose. I didn't know that. I heard one rocket come in, and we heard the sirens blaring and you know the instructions to go to a, a safe location. We were told to stay on the aircraft. None of us put our vests on, our bulletproof vests, because what would be the point? We're on a plane filled with gas. And I was strangely relaxed. I don't know why. Really? Yeah. Um, For anybody who's ever been to a war zone will know that you have all of the emotions you would expect to have. You just don't have them at the right time. My panic came later. So we got off the plane. We're finally given the all clear. We found an airdrop mission that was leaving first thing in the morning, which is great. So we got about two and a half, three hours of sleep. And then we got up bright and early to go Uh, do this airdrop, which was an amazing experience. We flew out on a big C-17 cargo plane about an hour and a half, two hours out to the middle of the country, dropped down to 2,000 feet. The back doors opened, and we watched all the cargo slide out the back and parachute down to resupply an Army forward operating base. It was incredible. And then we flew back to base, and now we could leave the country. We've done our primary mission. The problem was there were no planes leaving. We couldn't get on a flight. 
And it was only Saturday, and the next plane that we could maybe get on, because it's, it's not a guarantee, would be Tuesday. Every fiber of my body sank. My breath sank. My muscles sank. And that's when the panic and the paranoia started to come in. My parents would now not hear from me. And what am I going to do? Call them and say, hey, I'm in Afghanistan. I'll be home a little late, you know? And I became unbelievably self-involved. I became obsessed with one thing and one thing only, my safety, my comfort, my security, and I didn't care who had to twist themselves in knots to get me what I wanted. I remember the feeling. I remember talking to a public affairs officer. He said, I can get you on a flight to Kyrgyzstan, but you don't have the right visa. And I literally pointed my finger in his face and said, you get me on that plane. Now, I don't talk to people that way. And I could see myself. I could feel myself being that person that we've all worked for in our lives, you know, the person who only cares about their promotion and their advancement, and they don't care how many knives in our back that they have to climb. I was becoming that person, and I could feel it. We went back to our quarters, and I lay down, and my head was racing. I became absolutely paranoid. I was convinced there was going to be another rocket attack, and I was convinced it was going to land on me. I mean, I was convinced of it. I was convinced that my parents would find out that I was in Afghanistan when an airman went and knocked on their door. Convinced. I closed my eyes, but I couldn't sleep because my mind was racing. One of the officers I was with, Major Throckmorton, he said, I'm going to see if I can find us another flight, and he left. And the other guy I was with, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Wyatt, he said, well, I'm going to go to the gym then. And he went to the gym. Thinking I was asleep just because my eyes were closed, he turned off the light. And I lay in that bed, my mind racing. All I wanted to do was go home. I regretted being there. I regretted saying yes. I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And I was completely helpless. I was completely paranoid. I was depressed. I mean, it, this I was living a life compressed into 24 hours. And the strange thing is I had a great day. And I started to realize that this is what it means to live an unfulfilling life, where we confuse happiness with joy. We confuse excitement with fulfillment. We confuse winning a big business or getting a big salary or getting a big promotion with actually being fulfilled in the work that we do. We can confuse those. Because I had an incredible day. I had an experience that most people will never have in their entire lives. It was amazing and exciting and fun, and I didn't want to wake up and do it again the next day. I just didn't want to do it. I'm in the purpose business. And so I realized that one of the reasons I felt this way was because I didn't have a sense of purpose. I didn't have a reason to be there. So I started to invent one. You're here to tell their story and come back home. And it lasted for like five minutes and then it would like, you know, peter out and I was paranoid and depressed and hated everything again. And so I gave up. I lay in that bed completely depressed and I gave up. And I decided that if I'm going to be stuck here, I might as well make myself useful. And I decided that I would volunteer. That if they wanted me to speak, I would speak anywhere as many times as they like. I'd met some amazing people while I was there, and I wanted to help them. So I decided that if I was going to get stuck there, I would volunteer to help. I would carry boxes. I would sweep floors. It didn't matter to me how menial the labor was. I wanted to serve those who served others. Upon this decision, I felt fine. This amazing calm came over me. I was even excited to stay. It was amazing. This is what purpose is. It's the desire to serve those who serve others. And that's what gave me this calm. As if it were a movie, the timing was uncanny. Hadn't come, hadn't, having just come to this conclusion, the door flies open. Major Throckmorton walks in and says, I got us on a flight. There's been a flight that's been redirected. We can get on it if we leave now. We have to leave now. If we don't leave now, well, they'll leave without us. We've got to go now. Where's Matt? I'm like, he's at the gym. So we run to the gym. We get Matt off the treadmill. We run back. There's no time for him to shower. He puts on his uniform. We grab all our stuff, and we literally run out of the door. 
we make our way to the flight line and we can see the plane we're supposed to get on a big C-17 sitting in the middle of the tarmac. As we're walking up to it, the security comes down and we're not allowed out to the plane. Why? As it turns out, there was a fallen soldier ceremony happening somewhere else on the base. And out of respect, everything stops while it happens. And so they wouldn't allow flight operations to happen or anything to happen at this moment. And so we sat on the curb and we waited. And I told the guys what I went through in the bed just moments before. I cried like a baby as I relayed the story. And there's one thing a lot of people don't realize about the military, which is crying is just fine. Interesting. I did not know that. As soon as the security cordon went up, we walked out to our C-17. We would be the only three passengers aboard this empty aircraft and the crew, of course. But we were the only three outsiders. The reason the flight was redirected is because we would be carrying home the soldier for whom they just had the ceremony. And so we stood on the plane and the soldiers brought on the flag draped casket. They placed it in the middle of the aircraft. We all stood at attention while those soldiers gave a slow eight count salute. They turned off the aircraft and walked off and we could see them hugging and crying as they walked out of sight. The Air Force crew got to work and strapping down the casket to the aircraft. It was a nine and a half hour flight back to Ramstein and I slept this far away, a few feet away. You know, as soon as we got into the air, we all staked out a piece of real estate, you know, so we could get some sleep, uh, laid out our sleeping bags on the floor of the aircraft. And I slept, you know, four or five feet away from this casket, going back to Dover, you know, back to where we started. And on every other flight, we talked, we joked. Barely a word was spoken on for nine and a half hours. On every other flight, I visited the cockpit and hung out with the crew. I didn't visit the cockpit once. And I'll tell you, it was one of the proudest experiences of my life. Because having just had that experience that I had, I had the great honor of bringing someone home who understands service way better than I ever will. It affected me, you know. Our final mission home was a what they call an AE mission, which is an um, aeronautical evacuation, which means flying the wounded home. And so we were bringing wounded servicemen back from Germany back home. Um, There's about 30-something wounded warriors of which there was one Marine in what they call CCAT, which is critical care, and they have a team of doctors devoted to that one patient. I mustered up the courage to go back and talk to the docs, and he was in an artificial coma. His buddy stepped on an IED and was killed. He took the shrapnel. He had two broken legs, two broken arms, shrapnel in his chest, punctured eyeball, broken eye socket. I've not seen a body like that before, and the docs were amazing. They walked me through and told me about his wounds and about all of the critical care innovation that was happening from these kinds of things. In other words, that we're making their way back to civilian hospitals. And even when they're injured, they're still giving back to us. The doctor happened to be a reservist out of Austin. He works in an ER in Austin. And uh, having just gone what I had gone through the past 24 hours, I asked him a question I don't think I ever would have asked him ever before, which is, you're a good guy. You save lives every day for a living. I said, do you have a different sense of fulfillment on these missions than you do back home? And he said, there's no comparison. He said, back home, 90 to 95% of the people who come through the ER are either drunks or idiots. That's what lands them in the ER in the first place. He says, there's not a single drunk or idiot here. He says, the honor I have of taking care of these people does not compare. It changed me. It affected me. I became obsessed with trying to understand where that kind of deep sense of trust and love and loyalty and desire to take care of each other comes from. It's not like that in private sector. I mean, occasionally. You know, we call each other co-workers or colleagues. They call each other brother and sister. And it's not polite. It's how they view each other. It's not that they sacrifice. You know, we thank them at the Air Force. Thank you for your sacrifice. No, 
It's for their willingness to sacrifice. Thank them for their willingness to sacrifice. Because we are not willing, they are. We all have to make sacrifices sometimes, and sometimes we're forced to. They choose to. None of us choose to. You think I chose to go through depression to find the why? No way, right? They choose to put themselves at risk. They choose to leave their families. Their families choose to live this difficult life because they believe in something bigger than themselves. And so Leaders Eat Last was born out of this experience, my desire to understand where trust and cooperation came from because I thought it was the people and I learned that it's not. It's the environment. And if you get the environment right, that kind of intense trust and cooperation can exist in any organization anywhere in the world. And that's what I attempted to, to try and dissect. It's a remarkable book. Thank I you. was astounded to read that only 20% of Americans love their jobs. That means 80% don't. Correct. And that also feels like an epidemic. Yeah, it is. And it's the responsibility of leaders. It's not the people's responsibility. It's the leader's responsibility. You know, leaders set the environment and people respond to the environment they're in. Fact, right? And that's why leaders matter because somebody has to create the environment. And the vast majority of business and corporate environments that exist today are very poorly led. We are living the side effects of decisions that were made in the 80s and 90s. These were boom years in the 80s and 90s. And the business techniques and strategies that they developed were fine for those times and they were good for short-term gains. Things like shareholder supremacy was a theory proposed in the late 1970s. The concept of using mass layoffs to balance the books. 1981. Okay, only started in the early 80s. It did not exist prior, only under extreme circumstances. But it wasn't normal and it wasn't used so quickly well, we've had a bad year, so we're going to have to have layoffs. Think about that. You're going to send someone home to say, I can no longer provide for my family because the company missed its projections? What are you kidding me? But this is the world we live in. In other words, what we've done is all of the theories that Jack Welch pioneered in the 80s and 90s don't work in this environment. And by the way, GE needed a $300 billion bailout in 2008. That's called an unstable company. That company was built for short-term gains, and that's what they got. And the problem is, is we are now living in a world in which those conditions are different. They are not boom years. We face external threats that are real, terrorism and the like. The world is different. The world has changed. Business has changed, and those theories will not work, and the problem is we're still using them. And we've created corporate and work environments in which people do not feel safe, where trust is not the norm, where we're willing to sacrifice people to save the numbers. And as a result, people come to work and they feel uneasy. Stress is high. People are always talking about work-life balance. That has nothing to do with how much yoga you do. It has nothing to do with the free snacks that they give you, right? Work-life imbalance means I feel safe at home and I don't feel safe at work. That's what it means. We need to change it. And it's the leaders who have to change the environments. We have to demand it. We have to demand that they, they lead properly, that they, no one wants to wake up to be managed. We want to wake up to be led. And we need to demand that our leaders lead and stop managing. I actually want to talk to you about the difference between managing and leadership. Leadership is human. Management is, is structural. You can manage a project. You can manage a company. But you lead people. You can't lead a company. You can, you can run a company. You can only lead people. And you certainly can't lead from behind a desk, and you certainly can't lead with email. It's a human enterprise. It's the same reason you can't parent just through texting. You, you can't do it. You can't be a coach of a baseball team with email. 
you got to show up. Right. You can't be texting while you're right. coaching. And, and the problem is leadership has become something that's done behind desks on spreadsheets. That's not leadership. Where are the leaders? You write in Leaders Eat Last that you know of no case study in history that describes an organization that's been managed out of a crisis. And then you quote Bob Chapman, CEO of Barry Waymiller, who states, no one wakes up in the morning to go to work with the hope that somebody will manage us. Every single one of them has been led. What are the fundamental differences between managing and leading? Because I think we are living in a culture now where they have almost become interchangeable. They unfortunately have become interchangeable. Just to repeat, leadership is a human enterprise. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. It is the same responsibility as a parent or a teacher or a coach. They're all the same things. They're all leadership positions where you take responsibility that the people in your charge will learn confidence, gain a skill set, have the opportunity to try and fall and try again and discover that they are capable of more than they thought they were capable of. They cannot do that without someone who says, I believe in you. They cannot do that without someone who says, I will teach you. They cannot do that without someone who says, try again, right? It doesn't exist. And so that's what leaders are. And not everyone's cut out to be a leader, and that's okay. Leadership is very difficult, and it comes at great personal risk. That's why you have to really, the first criteria of being a leader is you have to want to be a leader, right? right? You can't just be promoted and ta-da, you're a leader. No, that's not what it is. It's a responsibility. If you're going to speak out against injustice, if you're going to stand up to protect your people, if you're going to say no, there will not be no, any layoffs in my department. If you need to save 10%, I'll save you your 10%, but not at the expense of my people. You may lose your job. The oh, risks absolutely. are real. Absolutely. If you want to lead, you could get in trouble. Or, the next per- or you may not get credit for the things you do. All of these things are real, and the risks are real, and the time and energy that you're going to be asked to invest is real, and you will not get that time or energy back. Once it is spent, it's gone. It's not like money. You know, you make money, you spend money, you make more money, whatever. It's very hard work, just like being a parent. The sacrifices that you will make for this child, for what? What's the, what's the reason we do that? Because the joy of seeing someone in your care do something beautiful, your five-year-old shares with your four-year-old. Your kid gets a graduate school, gets a job, gets a promotion, gets married, all these performs in the show, all these little glimmers, and you sit back and you realize it was all worth it. Leadership is the same. To see your team achieve more than you thought, that, than they thought they were capable of, that they will advance the organization further than you even imagined because they believe and they're grateful and they're inspired, it's all worth all the sacrifices. It always is. You write extensively about Charlie Kim, who's the CEO of a tech company in New York City called Next Jump. This was really quite moving to me. You describe how he asks if you had hard times in your family, which is why, since you were talking about kids, this reminded me of the part in the book. Would you ever consider laying off one of your children? Yeah. And, and we wouldn't. Charlie implemented a policy at his company of lifetime employment at yep. Next Jump. So if you get a job at Next Jump, you cannot get fired for performance issues. Correct. In fact, if you have issues, they will coach you and they will give you support, just like we would with one of our children who happens to come home with a C from school. And you challenge us to consider why we lay people off inside our organizations. But wouldn't a guarantee of, and this is just playing devil's advocate for a moment, it's not about firing your children, um, but wouldn't a guarantee of lifetime employment enable certain people to coast? Um, isn't that why so many people have issues with tenure and academia? Let's be clear. It's not a charity. 
and they have responsibilities and they have goals that they have to hit. If they don't achieve those goals, sometimes they put they move them around to get more coaching and get more. So there's still all of those things exist. And the reason Charlie implemented that was because they were coming close to their fiscal year and he noticed that the mood in the office had changed, that there was this weird tension and productivity went down. And when he pulled somebody aside and said, what's going on? They said, well, they're afraid because if they miss the numbers, they're afraid that some of them will get laid off because that's normal, right? And Charlie thought that was disgusting. And so the quickest way he thought to eliminate the fear was to eliminate the fear of the layoffs. Well, it's so, such an interesting... So he got rid of the layoffs. He just announced yeah. that there will be no layoffs. Now, the difference between Next Jump and most other companies, it is unbelievably hard to get a job at Next Jump because if you're going to give someone lifetime employment, you want to make sure that they are good fits for your culture. You want to make for sure that the people who are going to work with them like them. You're going to make sure that they're open to being coached, that they're coachable, that they want to grow as human beings. It takes months and months and months to get a job at Next Jump because they're really, really careful who they let in. Other companies, because they lay off people so easily, you can have one or a couple interviews and you know, two days later they offer you a job. Nobody knows each other. Nobody. They asked you a few questions, looked at your resume, compared your resume to someone else. Maybe you, were on, you know, had a cup of coffee and you had a good day. Like We don't know that they're good people. We just know that they're good interviewers. You know? <laughs> yes. And we're like, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just let them go. No, 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 no. Because it's not an option, Next Jump f- hires very carefully. And so if all companies, let's say if it was against the law to lay people off to save numbers, you'd see that the HR policies and the hiring policies that companies implemented would be drastically different. It would work just fine. Would people coast? Of course people would coast. There's always, there's always a couple. Just like in the system that we have now, that there are people who are politicians who will stab each other in the back or blame someone for something because they don't want to put themselves at risk for layoff. Which would you rather have? Somebody who coasts a little bit as long as they don't get in the way or somebody who actively destroys your culture to save themselves? I mean... Toxicity. You know? Yep. And by the way, that's the definition of a toxic leader, a high performer with low trust. I learned that from a Navy SEAL. Interesting. High performers with low trust are toxic leaders. The Navy SEALs, one of the top performing organizations in the world in what they do, would rather have, we all want high performers with high trust. That's the gold standard. They would rather have a medium performer with high trust, sometimes even a low performer with high trust, over a high performer with low trust. You write quite extensively about the four primary chemicals in our body that contribute to all of our positive feelings. But I want to talk about the insidious nature of one of them, dopamine. It's highly, highly addictive. Cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, gambling, and overeating release dopamine. So does texting, email, the number of likes we collect, and what we refer to as the ding, buzz, or flash of our phones that tell us we've got mail. Why does this provide a dopamine rush? I understand the cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, those are all all chemical components we're putting into our body. But why did these interactions with gadgets do that as well? The, the comparison is best made to gambling, which is not a chemical we're putting That's in our true. body. That's right? true. The comparison is best made to gambling. So when you play a slot machine, we know what we're after, which is three sevens. Makes you rich, right? So you perform a behavior that gets you towards the thing that you want. You put a coin in the machine and you pull the handle. And you get one seven. <gasps> that little, <gasps> like, oh, my God, I nearly got it, right? That's dopamine, okay. right? And so it Isn't makes... is that hope? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So what that does is it... It makes you repeat the behavior because you're getting close. So you put another coin in the machine and you get sort of the bottom of one seven and the top of another one. You're like, <gasps> right? Or you get two sevens and half of another seven. You're like, oh, just missed it, right? And so what happens is you keep going and you keep going. 
Well, we all want to feel valued and we all want to feel loved. So when we get a ding, it's like, someone likes me, right? And that's what the texting does. That's what the likes do. That's what the, bing, the, 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 the buzz, the beeps. It's not the email per se. It's the, it's the inbox. You know, we all hate all the emails we get. What we love is the bing, right? You can't help yourself. It's, like, it's evidence. It's the, and like we've all had it where, you know, if you're feeling a little depressed, you send out 10 texts hoping to get one back, right? Bing, bing, bing. You're like, because it makes you feel good. But it's artificial, or at least it's short-term. It doesn't last. It's not artificial. It's real. It just doesn't last. It's very oh, short-term. It's short a hedonistic treadmill. It is a bit of a hedonistic treadmill. Real, real relationships are based on trust and emotion and oxytocin and serotonin. The dopamine is just a short-term hit. That's all it is. And so the problem is, is that there are too many things. It's not a bad thing. It's when it's out of balance. Like alcohol is fine. Too much alcohol is bad, right? Gambling's fun. Too much gambling is bad. Texting and social media, great. Too much of it can be destructive like any other addiction. Like any addiction, in time it will waste time, waste resources, and destroy relationships, right? There is a subconscious reaction when we put our phone on the table when we show up to meet someone for lunch or dinner. What it basically says is, you're not the most important thing to me right now. And they can feel it. And turning your phone upside down is not more polite. No, it isn't. We've all had the experience where someone pulls out the phone when you're with them and you either feel stupid or you pull out your phone. It's like an automatic response. Because it's horrible when we're with someone. Or my favorite is when you're talking to them and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they say, are you listening? They go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they repeat back everything you, you said to them. That's not listening. Hearing the words that were spoken is not listening. Listening is making someone feel heard. And that requires looking them in the eye and going, I hear you. Uh-huh. Got it. Right? Daydreaming isn't listening either, if you're, even if you're looking in their eye. Right? So why do we, why, especially with the digital natives now, why... Are we behaving like this? So, and this is one of the reasons that's contributing to the high rates of depression in young people. Right. Right? They're not practicing learning to make relationships because they're so, and I include myself, we're so attached to the device. You see people walking, holding their devices wherever they go. And now I started to see the younger kids, you can't see, but sort of girls walk like this with like their arms cocked and their, their, the phone right here. And, and, and guys walk like this, as if they're in the prone position, ready to send a text. And not even at their side. It's, it's like up and ready to but go. But they drive with their phones or in they, their hands. They drive with their phones in their hands because, again, it's an addiction. Now, let's go backwards. Almost all alcoholics discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And then when we go through adolescence, we change. We now start to need the approval of our friends and our peers. This is very, very important. Frustrating for our parents, but very, very important because it allows us to acculturate outside our immediate families. And it doesn't change for the rest of our lives, right? It allows us to have friends outside our immediate families, right? And make relationships. It's a very tense and anxious, stressful time, adolescence. And some people, quite by accident, discover the numbing effects of dopamine in alcohol during this time. And it helps them overcome the stresses and strains of adolescence. And that becomes hardwired. And so for the rest of their lives, whenever they suffer financial, career, or social stress, they drink. Now let's look at social media and texting and and all of these things. We don't recognize the addictive qualities. And so what we do is we allow people going through adolescence free access to social media and texting, which is like opening up the liquor cabinet to our young teenagers and say, whatever you need, whenever you want it. We limit the amount of alcohol people are allowed to consume because we know that there are addictive qualities and dangerous qualities. We restrict young people from having it. Because we know that given the nature of their, of their youth and, and how it works, it, it would get out of control very quickly. And so we try and manage it as best we can. But we have no restrictions or conditions or even recognition of the exact same problems with social media and texting. And so what you start to have now is an entire generation growing up 
addicts who associate their self-worth with how many likes they get or how many followers they have, where the ability to have difficult conversations is now gone. Forget about that people don't know how to date anymore. It's easy to get a date. You swipe right. But do you know how to walk up to a stranger in a bar or on the street and say, you're very attractive. Do you come here often? What sign are you? It's hard. But the problem is it's a social skill. And this phenomenon of ghosting now, and it's not like you go on one date and then you, don't, then you cut somebody out. There's too many stories of people who have been going out dating for four, five, six, seven months, and one of them decides they want to break up. They don't have a conversation and say, I don't think it's going to work. It's, it's not you. It's me or whatever line you want to use. They ghost the person. They, they, they stop returning their texts. They stop returning their calls. They block them on Facebook. They block them on all social media, which for the person on the receiving end is like a death just happened. Yes. And it's, it's so dramatic and so sudden. And they have no recourse and no ability to express anything. And no one t- it is absolutely destructive to the person on the receiving end. And the only reason it happens is because the person doing the breaking up is a coward who lacks the skill set to go up to someone and have given the dignity and say, it's not going to work and have the fight, right? Because it's human. And so all of these really bad social uh, norms are coming as a result of the lack of practice of sociability because the, the, all of the social stuff is becoming too digital too soon. Adults are addicted too. Universities are now dealing with an uncomfortably high number of students who are taking leaves of absence due to depression. That is unheard of prior in university systems. Depression is on the rise amongst young people. Suicide is on the rise amongst young people. Bullying is on the rise amongst young people. This is all in part because we have a young generation that has grown up addicted And by the way, they're now entering workforces that are not taking care of them. And so they're not even learning the skills and it it goes crazy. And so it it really is for our young people to stand up and take control of their own lives. I'm tired of people telling them, you're entitled. No, they're not. They're wonderful, fantastic, driven, smart human beings that unfortunately have – an imbalance of a chemical called dopamine in their bodies and they're working in or being asked to join companies that don't care about them, they care about their numbers. So they have to take control of their own lives. And what I ask them to do is take little small steps to start to undo the effects of dopamine. And what is that? What can they do? What can we do? Because I'm guilty as charged. Some of of them are very easy. Leave your phones in your bag. Leave your phones at home when you go out with your friends. Who, Who do you need to talk to when you're with your friends? Or everybody hand their phone one to the left. And so you don't even have your phone. Just like alcoholics get rid of the phones, uh, <laughs> just like alcoholics get rid of the alcohol in their home because we can't trust the willpower because it's addiction, so too can you not just put it next to you and say, well, I'm not going to check it. Rubbish. It buzzes or beeps. You're checking, you're checking, you're checking. Oh, people fake going to the bathroom exactly, to do it. Exactly. So if you hand your phone one to the left, you don't have it. I do it in meetings. I take everybody's phone away and everybody gives me a dirty look for the first five minutes and then you know what happens? Everybody relaxes. Well, it's interesting because and they talk. oh, they talk, but it, you have to go through that withdrawal. I mean, charge, the, the withdrawal is really and it, hard. And charge your phone in the living room, not in your bedroom. Don't because the first <laughs> thing you do is wake up and look at your phone, or worse, you wake up in the middle of the night and you check your phone. Right? It affects sleep, so that makes us even weaker too. <laughs> it's not that the device is bad; it's that the device is out of balance. Every now and then, delete Facebook app from your from your phone. Delete the, the uh, some of the dating apps from your phone. Just give them a break. You can download them again later because the problem is we're on them all the time. Spend time with your friends without phones. I mean like go to someone's house or apartment or whatever and either leave your phone at home because who are you calling 
Or everybody agrees to turn their phones off and put them in a bucket in the door and no one and just enjoy your friends. Even if you're watching movies, it doesn't matter. But don't you think that people will have a a sense of panic without that? Of course they do. That's called withdrawal. Right. But it only happens for a little bit. You'll get over it. I've been practicing. I now charge my phone in the living room. I now don't uh, – when possible, I don't take my phone with me out for dinner with friends. And if I have to bring it, I leave it with all the ringers off uh, somewhere I can't get to it. I put it on a shelf. I put it in in a pocket. And I've dramatically noticed the difference of how much more present I am with my friends. And not only do my friends appreciate it, I feel better. I'm enjoying my friends more. And they are trusting me more as much as I trust them more. And so for anybody who's finding short-term ways to overcome the feelings of anxiety by putting up pretty pictures on Instagram, that's fine. Do it. But remember, that's that's not self-worth. Mm. Self-worth comes from your friend saying, I love you. I need you in my life. I don't think I would be the person that I am without you because you're there for me and you give me attention and you give me time And you look me in the eye and you make me feel valuable and you make me feel valued and you make me feel like I matter. You write how your favorite definition of love is giving someone the power to destroy you and trusting they won't use it. Magnificent. And and when we talk about being vulnerable, this is what we mean, that we are willing to share our insecurities. We're willing to put ourselves in a position where someone could hurt us, that we're willing to turn left knowing that someone else is looking right. It's the reason we sit next to people we know when we go to the movies. We don't sit apart and we don't sit next to strangers. We leave empty seats because it feels safe, right? It's the reason our children are always touching us and it's important to hug our children because it makes them feel safe. You know, putting your arm around someone and, says, and saying to them, I think you're awesome, matters. We're not, we're not saying do it all in one day. The reason we call it vulnerability is it should be done slowly. It's a dance. And you get to the point where somebody knows so much about you, they literally could say one thing to you that would hurt you so deeply, but they don't, just like you wouldn't to them. And even if you stop being friends, you still wouldn't. And the pursuit of any great relationship is to find that. Even in a company, in our companies, great leadership is when we're giving the company the power to destroy us and trusting they won't use it, letting them know that we're not good at everything, letting them know that we broke something or we screwed something up or we lost some money Letting them know we pissed off a client. Letting them know that we have weaknesses. Letting them know that we don't know what we're doing and we're insecure and we're shy and we're scared. And they say, okay, so we'll take care of you. As opposed to the fear that we have of being vulnerable, even with our companies, for fear that it'll hurt us. The goal is to build all of our relationships, professional or personal, where we can feel that someone could destroy us and we feel totally, totally wonderful and safe in that space. Simon Sennett, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters today. Your book is remarkable. Both of your books are remarkable. Simon's latest book is Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. You can read more about Simon on his site, startwithwhy.com. This year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 